Small Farm Nation Academy helps farmers to build their brands, grow their email list, and get more farm customers. Now, a modern farm press website is included free with your membership. So if you want to get growing, check out smallfarmnationacademy.com today. Hey, it's Tim Young of smallfarmnation.com. In this episode, I'm going to share some key takeaways from my mastermind discussion with Greg Gunthorpe of Gunthorpe Farms in Indiana. Now, as you probably know by now, each month I conduct a mastermind interview for members of the Small Farm Nation Academy. These are video calls between me and an expert in matters that relate to growing a profitable farming business, and they tend to be an hour or so, give or take. In this episode, I'm going to share some highlights of my discussion with Greg Gunthorpe. Now, 2018 marks Greg's 20th year as a successful sustainable farmer. This year, he'll raise and market well over 100,000 poultry in addition to 2,500 pigs all raised on pasture. So tune in as Greg and I discuss building, branding, and marketing a sustainable farm business. And in the full hour-plus-long video in the Small Farm Nation Academy, we cover everything from selling to restaurants and setting up an on-farm meat processing business to how to raise, market, and get this, wax ducks to get a perfect carcass. I think you're going to get a lot out of this excerpt from that mastermind discussion. So let's just get right to it. Well, you don't know what you're feeding yourself. You just buy whatever's on the shelf. Well, let's see if I got the story right so far. So 98, uh, you know, you're very disillusioned with the whole, you know, pork market because of the prices. You get a tip about a new restaurant. You call Charlie Trotters. You know, you, you, you stick it in the Subaru. You take it, you get into the restaurant. From there, you basically start calling other chefs, it sounds like, and say, hey, I'm making a delivery to Charlie Trotter's, should I bring you anything, or something like that. Yep. And, uh, you know, from there, you start, you know, getting other uh, customers for your pork. You come across one that you want to get into that doesn't want pork because they're loyal to their pig farmer, which is good because you want, you want people to be loyal to you. So, you know, we appreciate them being loyal to, uh, to others as well. But they wanted poultry from you. And then the next year, you raised 12,000 chickens. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, you're crazier than I am. I thought I went fast for a while. That's ridiculous. So yeah. at the beginning, when you raised those 12,000 chickens, did you process those on farm or did you take them to another facility and then later set up your own facility? Um, we had another processor that would do a few of them for us. And then, but then uh, we started uh, very, very quick on doing them all ourselves because uh, we had no other processing option. So you said you spent 14 months uh, talking to USDA. You finally got them out. You finally yep. set up your processing. I know when I visited you, you had kind of taken even part of the garage, I think, of your house yep. or something. It was yep. part of it. And then you expanded a facility from there. Yep. And, you know, then you started going. So what did you, how did you make your equipment choices? How did you decide what you needed for your facility? Yeah, we, um, as you mentioned, we actually started in our garage. Um, told my wife that it would work and I'd build her a new house. And we did. Um, <laughs> That's all it takes, man. That's all it takes right there. She, she believed me. So, um, uh, we start, we started really, really small and, uh, don't, don't add up the number of years because, uh, we've, um, we've been, uh, supplying Fronteras, um, chicken and duck for 17 years. We've been USDA inspected at the farm for 13 years. Uh, so, uh, the math is a little fuzzy there, but, um, 
uh, we started out as uh, exempt processors before we were selling into Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. Did the thousand a year for a while, and then uh, we were state inspected for a couple of years, and finally got USDA inspection. Um, we had uh, we started with a um, Jayco plucker until we got tired of getting shocked the one that had the um, electric heating element in the bottom uh, <laughs> we we progressed to a um uh had a poultry man uh scalder um uh for a while and had uh one of, we had one of david schaefer's uh first pluckers that come over um that he uh, imported into the country yeah uh, we did a lot of birds through a plucker that would hold two um chickens per time uh then we got some Ashley equipment um, added on to it. Uh, we've come a long ways. My wife and I used to be able to do um, 30 to 40 chickens in the yard is where we started at. And uh, on a good day, we can run between 12 and 16 chickens a minute now. So, um, <laughs> That's crazy. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it, we've come a long, long ways. Yeah, you, um, have, you, have, have, you have come a long way. So you started then processing your first processing on farm was poultry. When did the whole red meat or the pork thing come um, into play? We, we were sending the pigs off to be um, uh, slaughtered, to killed and chilled. Um, and we were having some issues with the, um, the only plant in the um, area that would still scald and dehair. Um, and we were having some issues on, uh, they weren't chilling the pigs quite as fast as I'd like them to be. Um, and so, um, we we bought a um, different scalder from Eli Rife from Poultry Man of mm -hmm. Pennsylvania yep. um, that the table would remove. Um, and we started doing pigs in the same scalder that we were doing our chickens in. And that's probably been, that's well, been a lot of years ago. <laughs> uh, it's probably been 10, 11 years ago or better. So for small farmers starting out, because I got a question from one of our members about, you know, equipment, and you just went through the whole line of what you did. I know on my farm, I used, uh, I used Featherman from uh, David uh, for all of our stuff because we were doing like 5000 a year, and that worked out fine for us. But what would you recommend for small-scale farmers in terms of poultry processing equipment? Let's say someone who wanted to do, you know, two to 5000 a year on farm. Um, I, think, I think nowadays you have uh, quite a few choices. Uh, you know, you've got um, David Schaefer, uh, poultry man. Uh, um, so you got Featherman, you got poultry man. Uh, Cornerstone uh, um, is a good place to go look that I think sells most of them. Um, you know, a, a good scalder and a good plucker uh, is will get you started. Uh, and I think the biggest thing that is required and and the biggest thing that we've seen is there's an awful lot of practice and skill involved. Uh, you know, the, um, our ability to um, uh, scald and pluck chickens nowadays and to be able to eviscerate chickens is, at, you know, hundreds of times better than what it was when we first started. So, right. um, you know, a simple, uh, simple scalder and plucker and uh, kill cone set up and practice. Yeah, I know. That's why I came to visit you and spent a day or so, you know, processing with you, you know, eight or nine years ago, in particular, because we struggled, you know, and we never got great 
at ducks. I mean, chickens we got fine at, but ducks, and I know you and many other people would say, I think with the Pekins, it was like, um, you know, six weeks to eight weeks or whatever, or you look for the pin feathers or you look for a certain stage, but we never could get that right. What tips do you have to somebody on a small scale, not your scale, who wants to raise ducks and, and be really good at processing ducks with the skin on? Um, you know, ducks, there's quite a few steps. And uh, um, I, I think I've got a few posts on the um, pastured uh, poultry, both on the Apple list as well as on the pastured poultry Facebook list uh, in case I miss one. Uh, but first of all, um, you need to start with a uh, um, really clean duck. You don't want a duck that's muddy, which is ducks like to get muddy because so, they like to be in water. But start with a clean duck, uh, but a duck that has uh, had – access to water to drink the whole time up to slaughter because dehydrated ducks uh, pluck and scald harder. Um, you need really good temperature control on your um, uh, scalder. Um, we currently scald ours now at, at about 138 to 140 degrees and for about 210 seconds. Uh, we used to scald 146, 148 for about 80, 85 seconds. Uh, we found the lower temperature and longer is more forgiving on the uh, not breaking the skin, but that the loosened the feather follicles. Mm -hmm. We um, throw them into the plucker and dry pluck for about 10 to 15 seconds uh, before we put um, water to them, uh, and then put water to them. Uh, um, ducks do not like to um, uh, roll in the plucker as well, uh, so you have to match your number of ducks in your plucker to um, what we'll get. So they just barely start to hit each other, so they actually move in there because otherwise they'll just lay. Um, you know, breast side against the side and won't take anything off the other side. They mm -hmm. should come out of the plucker uh, relatively um, uh, free of feathers. Um, and then we wax ours, but the wax is just to remove the last of the feathers. It's not mm -hmm. to remove most of them. If they're not coming out um, good enough there, you need to get better temperature control and you need to get better time on your um, control on your scalder. Um, and then after that, it's just we wax them. Uh, dunk them into cold water, um, push the um, wax off. Don't pull the wax off so that you're um, applying pressure to the wax. So it's actually sliding the feathers off mm. and they come out. Um, uh, we do ours. Um, we either have to try to get ours when they're in that seven, eight weeks. They have to be younger than eight weeks. Uh, most of ours, we end up processing uh, closer to 13 weeks. Uh, they end up being a very large duck by that, but it works out pretty good for us. So 13 weeks is the same uh, kind of stage in terms of their feathers is like yeah, seven the, to eight weeks. Um, you can actually tell if you look out on the pasture, the, um, uh, they will be dropping uh, that little white down feathers. If they're dropping their little white down feathers, they're in the right feather stage. Hmm. Uh, you can also flip them over um, and push the feathers apart on their um, underside. If they've got those uh, pins that are about, um, uh, three-eighths of an inch long and they're just a little bit bigger around than uh, pencil lead, they're going to be really hard to um, run through the scalder plugger. So for the waxing stage, uh, is there um, sensitivity to temperature on that? Does that need to be yeah, tightly the, controlled? The wax temperature is, uh, if it's um, too cold, uh, you'll run out of wax. It'll be on their way too thick. You can't get it off. If it's um, too hot, it'll be too thin. Uh, we like to run the wax at about 170 degrees mm. and uh, we um, picked up a used uh, steam kettle at a, um, at the local um, uh, school surplus auction. We paid $90 for it. <laughs> and uh, because it's a self-contained steam kettle, 
it likes to go up above, you know, obviously steams above 212 degrees. So it likes to get uh, too warm. It's hard to keep it at 170 degrees. So um, to control the temperature, we have to keep adding back in a little bit of wax textually to keep it cool mm. at times is as difficult as to keep it up to temperature. And you mentioned, you know, you want to start with a clean duck. So we're all raising ducks on pasture. Do you have a process of taking the ducks off pasture for a day or so before to keep them clean? Or what do you do to keep them? Clean? No, no. The um, uh, big thing is there that um, uh, their last uh, rotations or whatever, they need to be on decent grass so that they don't have chance to be, you know, in uh, any kind of mud. And then uh, um, we've had better luck since we've quit. Um, we quit crating them. Uh, we actually put them in the same holding pens as what we use for the pigs, and uh, we bed them really well. Mm. So uh, catch them the night before. And then also we hook the lids up on the pig waters so they can continue to drink the whole time. It's fun to hear you describe this, and it sounds so easy, Greg, when you describe this. Oh, we built a smoking facility, now we smoke some stuff, we make some great product. But, you know, this is stuff you got to learn. I mean, it's like when I built a cheese cave and I learned how to age, you know, long-age cheeses and stuff. I can say that simply, but for a lot of people, that's like, dude, where do you start? So how did you, oh. how did you learn the requirements for the facility? And most importantly, how did you learn to produce the product? Um, you know, the... Um I've had a few unique opportunities there too. The, um, uh, you know, we were part owners of a processing plant up in Michigan for three years, uh, those first three years that we got started. Uh, so um, got to see what they were doing beforehand for their um, smoke product. Uh, so got to see the curing a little bit uh, firsthand. Um, the other thing that is a really unique opportunity that I've took advantage of is we sell to some of the best restaurants and some of the best chefs in the Midwest. So I get the opportunity to be, uh, you know, and especially when I was still making all of the deliveries, um, I was in some of the nicest restaurants in the country uh, with some of the best culinary minds and doing some uh, really, really cool, unique products. And uh, those people are very, very willing to um, share information. And then uh, the other thing that is a huge, huge advantage for us is the um, people at uh, Frontera Grill have been so, so good to us. Uh, so we got to um, make product, uh, send it to them, uh, get feedback on it, uh, work with them on what we were going to do different for the next test batch and work through that whole process. So um, Frontera Grill and a few others have been really, really great. Um, and then... Uh, just like I said, you know, my um, my mom told me that, you know, if you want something, uh, you got to ask for it. Um, same thing if, if you want to do something, it takes practice. Uh, you're not going to be able to figure Don't out be afraid. how to put um, two people on a line and eviscerate chickens at 12 a minute uh, if you don't do a whole bunch of chickens. Same as uh, making bacon. Uh, you can want to make the best bacon in the world but you're probably going to make some that's not the best bacon in the world till you figure out how in the world you're going to make bacon. Well, how would you counsel somebody in terms of, okay, here's my strategy for pitching restaurants. I mean, what have you learned about pitching restaurants that might be valuable to a new farmer? Um, I think that uh, you have to have a product that um, uh, can relatively easily get you in the door. And I think that that product uh, for us was chickens. Um, I think eggs would be even a um, better product because it wouldn't uh, kill the restaurant's food costs to try it. And there's a, um, you know, uh, people can easily see the difference in the egg. Um, uh, so, um, and then 
be um, very mindful of the um, that the chefs are very very busy, especially at certain times of the day. So try to set an appointment with them beforehand. Uh, go in. Uh, I wouldn't give them more than one sample, uh, but I would probably try to take one sample along. Um, uh, explain to them what the um, benefits of your uh, product are. Um, realize that um, all of the um, benefits in the world that, um, to a chef aren't going to mean any much of anything if you can't provide them uh, consistency and uh, high quality. Um, there is, is that what you important. found that the chefs require more than anything a consistent product? Mm, um, I I hate to use the word um, consistent um, in uh, it's a relative term. I mean I don't mean that I don't mean to say that they all need every single thing to be exact, but I think that they need everything to relatively taste the same you know they don't want you to be bringing them uh a pig pigs this week that you processed that were 200 pounds and uh three weeks from now you're processing 300 or you know vice versa they don't they don't want you going uh crazy on and they want them to taste well so they don't want your marbling to be all over the board they don't want your um uh, you know one week you're bringing them Cornish cross chickens. The next week you're bringing them red Rangers, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, um, and then, and they want it to be uh, a, of exceptional quality. They don't, they don't want anything that is questionable on, you know, shelf life on uh, taste on any of that. I, I think that uh, I think chefs, um, let me, let me explain this better. I think I think that uh, our rest or our customer base uh, tends to fall into um, two categories. And it's, while I think there's a huge overlap, I still think there tend to be in two categories. I think the one category is the foodies, and I think the other category is the um, health conscious consumer. And I think that restaurants tend to be a large portion of those are the foodies. So mm. they're after uh, an exceptional dining experience. And everything that we can do to make that dining experience or the chef to be able to provide a better dining experience is what they're after. I think the, um, in general, the individuals that buy the product tend to be in that health conscious uh, market and want us to do every single thing possible for animal welfare, environmental, uh, keeping the chemicals out of the food um, in both the production and the processing. And I, I think there's a lot of overlap, but I do think they're different markets. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I think that's a great way to segment the market, too, between those two. Um, you know, when you talk about selling so much to retailers and to restaurants, I mean, what, what is the uh, – how do you manage the ordering process? Do you have any systems that you use for that, or what is the process for people placing orders? Yeah, my, um, my daughter um, manages that, and she uses um, uh, Farmer's Web hmm. um, for the online ordering um, and then with that, she's able to produce the um, cutting instructions for the guys in the plant and the truck loading papers and uh, the papers for my wife to do the invoicing. Uh, it becomes, uh, becomes an awful lot of paperwork and an awful lot of uh, information to manage. Well, success comes at a price, Greg. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess. So, so I know you're not selling much on farm now or anything like that, but uh, have you looked at doing things like a crowd cow or anything like that for selling products? 
Um, we did a um, turkey project with Crowd Cow. Did you see that? Um, uh, this last Thanksgiving, uh, I think they did about 500 turkeys for us. And how did that work out for you? Um, it worked out okay. I think they um, uh, had intended to sell more than that. Um, and then ended up with a smaller number. And I think we would have sold those others had we not been keeping them for crowd cow. But other than that, it worked out really well. I think that us and them will work the bugs out of that in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll, it'll be good. Uh, this um, last Thanksgiving, uh, we also did our first um, uh, direct to consumer pickup in uh, Chicago. And uh, we're going to add um, two more stops to that next year and hope to double each stop each year with the goal of selling 1,000 turkeys uh, direct to individuals within five years. <laughs> you, you love setting these aggressive goals. Well, let me, let me ask you in terms of profit margin, if you were to rate these three uh, distribution channels, um, which, which one would you, would you rate in terms of number one being the best and number three being the least favorite between, let's say, a crowd cow, restaurants, and retailers? Our wholesale price to all three of them is virtually identical. So, but you have more dependability. I gotta believe. I would. I would think currently with one or over the other, or are they all just as dependable? Uh, I really like the mix of our Indianapolis market of where we sell to um, uh, a larger percentage into wholesale to retailers um, with the restaurants because our um, fluctuation. Uh, during the season is significantly less. Um, you know, over a long period of time, we kind of have a really good ballpark idea of what the restaurants are going to buy. But in Indianapolis, it's more uh, like this, where in Chicago, it's more like that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So from, uh, and I don't think we intended for it to do that, but as we've added customers and as we've diversified our customer base, I think we get um, more predictability in what we're going to do. So last question, Greg, and then we'll let you go. I know there's a lot of people today. I talk to them and I know that you probably talk to them too, because I see how active you are on Facebook and in the conferences. There's a lot of people starting small scale direct marketing farms today have been for years. And I think that trend is going to continue. What's your best advice to someone starting out who wants to succeed in the long term? Um, I think my best advice is the same thing that I tell the, um, uh, JA crowds, and I think I touched on it earlier. Um, I'm 100% convinced uh, that long term, uh, you make your own luck. Um, you want to be successful in this world. Um, you, you, the easiest way you have an advantage over somebody else is uh, you get up in the morning earlier than they do. Um, you go to bed later than they do. Um, you hit it harder than they do. And, uh, you know, that's... Uh, that's one thing, you know, I've been around uh, some people that have been highly successful in the restaurant business, highly successful in other things. Um, they have a really, really strong drive, a really, really strong work ethic. Um, and all of them make mistakes, but all of them just keep going on, even though they made mistakes. Okay, Small Farm Nation, that's it for me in this episode. Remember, you can keep up with me and all my content at smallfarmnation.com. There's a link on the site to my free farm marketing group on Facebook where thousands of farmers discuss issues important to growing their farm and their food business. 
Of course, I'd love to have you be part of the Small Farm Nation Academy, and you'll find more information about that on my site, also at smallfarmnation.com. As always, you can find the show notes from this episode on smallfarmnation.com, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or elsewhere. Until next time, here's to hoping you and your farm business get growing. Well, you don't know what you're feeding yourself. You just buy whatever's on the shelf. You don't care if it's full of GMO. And what's inside them, nobody knows. Cables to the left of you, right up to the right. Here I am, out here farming for you. Yes, I'm out here farming for you. And I just want you to know the truth. My food is real and locally grown. Just a few miles from your home. Cables to the left of you, right up to the right. Here I am, out here farming for you. Well, factories falling, not the waste of eating fake food every day. I grow real food, your family needs, now come along and sing with me. Just want you to know the